not by nature very romantic. Shainu can tell you of the debacles and many attempts I've tried, but it doesn't come naturally to me. Uh, I have story after story of that, which I'll save for another time. But being that that is who by nature I am, not very romantic, it sort of surprised me to discover that I actually love doing a wedding. Uh, I think I told you that this summer I performed my first wedding, the first marriage that I got to conduct or the, be the minister to oversee, and I actually loved the experience. Uh, I then got to be a part of Sibby and Stephanie's wedding in Dallas over the summer. This Saturday, again, as I mentioned, we'll get to have Chad and Jesse married here, and I get to preside over that. And I've loved that experience. Again, not being very romantic, I, I didn't think that really surprised me that I actually enjoy doing a wedding. I've been to weddings before. I've sat on the side of the pews and, you know, they're, they're fine. It's just I didn't have any great affinity towards being a part of one. And yet being on this side, I'll tell you from the vantage point of a pastor, as a minister who gets to preside over the thing, it's, a, it's an incredible and humbling moment, right? You get to be there to watch the groom as he sees his bride for the first time. You get to watch the father give this daughter away. You get to watch the entire audience sort of zoomed in, zeroed in, staring at the whole thing, watching these events unfold. But more than all of that, I think what draws me the most to it, what gets me the most about it, what marvels me or, or humbles me might be the right word, what humbles me the most about the part I get to play is that by the time that ceremony is done, the words that I speak, the rituals that I help perform will take these two individuals who came into the room as singles and by the time I'm done, they are married. That's a very humbling thought that the words that I speak over that ceremony, the rituals that I help perform, so the vows that are spoken, the rings that are placed on fingers, the documents that are signed, by the time that is done, a relationship that has never been on the face of the planet now is. Never in history before that moment was this couple, and now after I've spoken these words, performed these rituals, they are. There's a, a permanent union. There's a, a couple. There's these two people who are standing together, and by the time it's done, they are forever one. It's, it's a humbling, incredible moment. It's something to witness and see. And it's something like that moment that we are invited to, to witness and to participate in, when you get to Exodus chapter 24. In Exodus 24, you're sort of invited to witness the same thing. It's not exactly a wedding, not exactly, but it is very, very close. Because what you see in Exodus 24 is God comes and the people of Israel come and they're both staring at one another. And in Exodus 24, some words are gonna be spoken, some rituals are gonna be performed, and when it's done, they become one. They're brought into covenant relationship. There's this permanent union that was not there before that moment that now is and forever will be. You're witnessing something amazing in Exodus 24 because God is going to come and the people are going to come and Moses is going to speak some words and perform some rituals and when it's done, there is a permanent union. There is a relationship that till that moment had never been 
and from that moment will never not be again. God and his people come into covenant relationship. And so today we get to watch that happen and we get to consider what the ceremony is for us also to be brought into covenant with God. For us to stand even this morning facing God and God to face us and to know that we are made one. That's what we'll consider in Exodus 24. As you turn there in your Bibles, let me pray and ask God to help us as we consider his word. Lord, we give you thanks for this time in your word and under it. We pray that the Holy Spirit would quicken our hearts to believe what you have to say, that you would lead us to Jesus Christ and draw us to yourself through him. We pray that you would be glorified and we would be encouraged, saved, edified in this time. Do that by the power of your spirit. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, we're in Exodus 24, and when we get to this part, what, what I want you to hear is that we're actually finishing the second of a three-part series through the book of Exodus. If you've been with us since March, we've been working our way through what we've called the gospel according to Exodus, because it's our, our belief that though Jesus is not mentioned once in this book, he's everywhere, and the good news of Jesus has been on every page as we walk through this story. Today, we're in the last chapter of part two, Next week, we'll take a week off. The week after, we'll get back into the book, and that'll take us all the way to Christmas morning as we get into part three of this book. So that's sort of where we're headed. Here's where we've come from. Over the last few weeks, we've been in chapters 19 and following. In chapter 19, when we arrived there, we saw the people of Israel arrive at Mount Sinai for this meeting with a holy and loving God. Last week, if you were here, you saw us talk through chapter 20 and the beginning of the covenant. Again, if you weren't here, go back. You can hear it online. This relationship between God, the great king, and Israel, his subjects, and they were going to come into covenant. And we saw the Ten Commandments last week. This week, we're in chapter 24. And what we're going to see is the ceremony or the moment in which this covenant is ratified, in which all that has happened from them meeting God in 19 to this whole thing being sealed in chapter 24. In chapters 21 to 23, you've got these laws, what's called the laws of the covenant, the stipulations that God gives throughout this section. So we're not going verse by verse through chapters 21 to 23, but I want to say a couple of quick words about it so that you understand what's going on there, right? So 19, they meet God. 20, the covenant begins with the Ten Commandments. 21 to 23 are these laws that God gives to his people. 24, the chapter that we're in, is when this whole thing is sealed. The covenant is ratified. God and Israel become one. So just a couple of quick words about chapters 21 to 23. When you come across, if, if you even just look through your Bibles, just thumb through it, glance at it, you've seen, if you've looked through the Bible, you've seen sections like this. And it can be very hard to get through. This can be difficult terrain because you've got all these laws that seem very foreign and unfamiliar and you have no idea what bearing they have on your lives. What does laws about cattle and donkeys and oxen have to do with you in Philadelphia in 2011, right? So this can be difficult terrain. What makes it more difficult is this is a large number of the pages of the Old Testament. In fact, in these first five books that Moses writes called the Pentateuch, you're going to find nearly three quarters are devoted to large sections of the law. 
So what do you do there? When you get there, you want to ask yourself, what is this supposed to teach me about God? What's it supposed to teach me about me? How am I supposed to apply these pages of Scripture? We're sort of tempted to fast forward through it, right? Or even if you begin reading the Bible, you'll do well through Genesis, and then you get to the laws of Leviticus, and you slow down, and then you're done by the time you get to Deuteronomy. You can't read anymore, because what are we supposed to do with these sections? What I want to say is this. Um, God gives us this section for, for a number of reasons. When we get to chapters 21 to 23, again, as you're looking through it, laws about slaves, laws about restitution, laws about social justice, as you read through this section, here's what's happening. God has given in chapter 20 his high ethical commands, basic ethics. Do not kill, do not steal, do not lie, do not commit adultery. Anything everyone would agree with. And in chapter 21 to 23, he's forming this nation called Israel, and he's teaching them, here's how you live out these high ethics on the ground. Here's what it looks like to live this out in life, in society, in this new nation. Remember, in chapter 19, God is forming a new nation, a new country that has never been, Israel. And so they're going to need laws and structures and rules. For 400 years before that, remember, they were in Egypt. They never had rules. They did whatever Pharaoh told them to do. And now if they're going to be a people, a nation, they need to know how to structure their lives, how to structure their, their governments, their society. And so in chapters 21 to 23, God is beginning to teach Israel, here's what life in my kingdom looks like. If I'm to be your king and you my citizens, here's what my kingdom looks like. Here's what my nation looks like. And so he begins to unpack what these different laws look like when it's lived on the ground, right? So you'll have laws like do not steal, high ethical laws, Ten Commandments. But then you get chapter 21, 22, all these laws about restitution because on the ground, what do you do when someone does steal? What do you do when someone grabs property or damages property or steals property? How do you deal with real life? Do you see that? High law fleshed out in reality. Do not murder, big ethical command. But what do you do when two guys get into a fight and one accidentally kills the other, right? How is that different? How do we judge that differently from a man who's plotting and waiting to kill someone else? If you look at our own law books, in our own culture, country, our own society, we too differentiate between homicide and accidental manslaughter. These things are important for any nation. So it was for Israel. So you've got these laws to help them figure out how do you live out this grand vision in day-to-day -day real life, particularly when no one's as good as God is. We're going to break these commands, so how do we live out the, this life in real life? And then when you, when you stand back far enough and look at 21 to 23 and large sections of the Bible that look like this, here's what I want you to consider. When you come across the law of God, you want to think through three buckets. This is a generalization, but this is hopefully just to get your feet uh, oriented to this lay of the land, right? So rather than feeling like you're walking through the woods without a flashlight, hopefully this is just giving you a feel for the land. When you see God's laws, generally think of three buckets. You've got civil law, ceremonial laws, and moral laws. Civil laws, ceremonial laws, moral laws. So that when you're reading this, you go, okay, what's going on here? L let me give you a couple of quick words on them. Civil laws. 
When God is giving his laws to his people, he wants to teach them what life in his kingdom, society, with one another is going to look like. That's a huge part of God's heart, how we relate not just with God but with one another. Because if you go back to the Ten Commandments, the high ethical laws, you'll notice that the first four are this vertical relationship between us and God. Have no other gods, make no other images, don't take God's name in vain, keep the Sabbath holy. But the second six, commands five through ten, are all horizontal in nature. Don't commit murder. Don't kill one another. Don't steal from one another. Don't lie against each other. Don't cheat from each other. God is very concerned with how we relate to one another. And so he gives to his people Israel these civil laws to let them know, here's what life in my kingdom looks like. When you read those laws, the details, the specifics will feel foreign. And yet, there is still wisdom to be gleaned, principles that you're supposed to keep. Does that make sense? You're going to read these laws, and it's going to talk about oxen and donkeys and, and how to treat this and what to do there, and they will feel foreign. And yet, when you come across these civil laws, there's principles there that still apply. Let me give you an example. If you read in the Alaskan law books that there is this law in Alaska that says you shall not in any way damage or knock over your neighbor's igloo. Okay, you read that and you go, okay, how do I apply that to Philadelphia? How am I going to transport that law there to life in Philadelphia here? And obviously you go, it doesn't apply straight across. We're in a different culture, a different context, we have different realities, and so that law in one sense cannot be applied here. But in another sense, you get the principle, which is don't damage your neighbor's stuff. Don't ruin what belongs to someone else. That principle can surely be applied in Philadelphia. So it is with the laws that you see in Israel. You'll hear God say to his people, when you build a new house, construct a parapet around the house so that you're not guilty of blood. And you read that and you go, what? So now if you're constructing a new house in Philadelphia, you're wondering, how do I get the contractor to build a parapet? How am I going to obey God's law? Does Exodus have something to do with home building in 2011 in Philadelphia? You go, time out. That's not it. God is simply teaching his people, listen, when, you're, when your workers are building a roof, you want to make sure that they're not falling off to their death. So build something in place that keeps them safe. The principle applies. The, the idea is, look, in God's kingdom, he cares how you care for other people, even those working for you. You are to be the kind that looks out for your neighbor and their well-being, that looks out for their life and their safety. That's the kind of people I want you to be. Chapter 23, verse 4, there's going to be this verse about, listen, when you're walking by the way and you see your enemy's donkey heavy under the burdens, lying on the side of the road, don't pass him by. Go help your enemy lift the donkey up. And you go, how does that apply to 2011? There are no donkeys on the sides of roads, but you get it. He's saying, look, even if you've got beef with someone, if they're broke down on the side of the road, don't let your car whiz by. Even for your enemy, you stop, you pull over, you help. There's principles there, even if the specifics do not apply. Civil law. There's also ceremonial law. This will be much quicker. We know that Israel is being formed into a nation, but it's not just any nation. They are a particular and unique nation. Why? They're not just a nation. They're a nation of priests. They're not just a kingdom. They're a holy kingdom. They're a kingdom unto God. And so unlike any other nation that was ever till that point or ever since, 
Israel is the only nation who has ever been a true theocracy, meaning God was their direct and immediate king. They were citizens of God. And so there were laws and rules that applied to them that do not apply to any other place. I I need us to hear that. In America, God is not ruling over America like he ruled over Israel. America is not the new Israel. God ruled over Israel in a way that was specific in that time and place like he's never done before or after. And so there were ceremonial laws given to Israel, never again given to anyone else. Laws that had to do with how do you build altars, ceremonies. How do you do sacrifices? How do you install priests? And those laws came to help form this nation and to move us all to seeing how much we needed Jesus. That's the point of the ceremonial law. Because those laws were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. This is why then the New Testament, when Paul will say things like, you are no longer under the law. It's not, all right, we're free from the Ten Commandments. I guess we can sleep around, steal, lie, kill. No, it's, you're not under the old laws of Israel. You're not Israel. Those things have been fulfilled in Christ, right? All their ceremonial laws. When you're talking about sacrifices, what was that getting you ready for? But Jesus, the true and great sacrifice, fulfilled. When they were talking about priests, what was that getting you ready for? But Jesus, the true and great high priest. When it was talking about uh, unclean and clean foods that the people were supposed to eat, what was that getting you ready for? But Jesus, who takes that which is unclean and makes it clean. And so that's why you're allowed to eat at Red Lobster. That's why you're allowed to do what you're allowed to do, because you're no longer under the law. The ceremonial things of Israel have been fulfilled in Christ. Civil law, ceremonial law, moral law. This one trumps the other two. The other ones are temporary. They're specific in context. They're specific in nature. Moral law is God's character. Do not kill. That's the way it's been from the beginning. That is the way it will always be. And all of us are bound to that law. Do not be the kind of people who cheat or steal or sleep around. Those things are from eternity past and to eternity forward. They are binding on all of us. Where the other ones are temporary, these are permanent. Where the other ones are specific to one people of one time, we don't hear, honor your parents and go, I guess that was just for Israel then. We go, this applies to all people everywhere at all times. So when you walk through these scriptures and you walk through these large passages of law, these passages are teaching you about who God is and who you are, reminding you of your need for Christ, reminding you of all that's been fulfilled for you in Christ, reminding you of what God was doing with Israel then to teach you of what God's doing with you now, right? These laws have a wonderful way of reminding you of how holy God is and how sinful you are. I remember not not long ago, very recently, reading through these laws, just devotionally, and, and being cut to my heart about this thought. If I lived in Israel, I would be stoned to death. That is not metaphorical. That's not me being modest. As I read through these laws, I've done enough sin in my life that I know if I lived then, they would take me outside the camp. They would pelt my head with rocks until I no longer breathed. That is the kind of sinner these laws show me that I am. And so what does that law do? It produces in me fresh gratitude. Thank God I was born now and not then. 
Thank God I was born after Jesus died so that I would not have to die. Thank God I was born into the church and not into Israel. My heart overflows with gratitude as I think about what I deserved and what Jesus took for me. I had a professor in seminary who said, if you find your heart is cold, hard, distant from God, turn even to the law, because as you read it, you're reminded of what a lawbreaker you are and what a lawkeeper Jesus was and how he took your crime and took your place and took your penalty for you. So here Israel is, when we get now to 24, they've got moral laws given to them, they've got civil laws given to them, they've got ceremonial laws given to them, and the people are in. They hear it all and they go, we're ready. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. That's their response. Look at how it happens, 24 verse 1. Here's what it says. Then he said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship me from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. So now Moses is invited back up to the mountain. This brother has been up and down this mountain so many times we've lost track, right? He's going to God for the people and going to the people for God back and forth over and over again. Now, a larger entourage is sort of invited to come up this mountain because it's not just Moses, now his brother Aaron, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, 70 of the elders, they're all invited to come. Moses comes the furthest in. The people are all the way at the bottom. The second group comes a little further. Moses comes all the way in. And even in that small detail of who's invited, you hear these two names, Nadab and Abihu. As you keep reading the story that Moses writes and you get to the book of Numbers, you find that these are Moses' sons who become the priests of Israel, installed among the first priesthood of Israel. And yet their end is that they worship God irreverently and God literally consumes them with fire. And I think their names are here perhaps as just a warning to us. You had these two guys who were invited into God's presence like no one else was who got to see what no one else got to see and hear what no one else got to hear. And even in spite of all of that, it didn't keep them from falling away in their sin and, and being judged in the end by God. Right? What a warning. I mean, you think about what they were privileged to see, privileged to hear, while the rest of the nation was down below. Their eyes, this passage is going to say, saw God. They heard him. They were invited to the most intimate scene that you're going to see in 24, and yet in the end, even they fell away. I think it's a warning to us. Some of you in this season of life are hearing the gospel like you've never heard it before. You're experiencing the gospel like you've never experienced it. You're in community. You're, you're seeing God, seeing his people invited in closer than ever before, and yet what a warning to us that this stuff actually finds its way into your heart rather than you being around this thing and it never working its way in. Rather than in the end, you two finding yourself having been fallen away from God. Nadab and Abihu serve as a warning to us. And so Moses goes in with this group all the way in and then verse 3, he comes back to the people to tell them all that God has said. Moses came, verse 3, and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules and the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Hear that again. All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Moses comes back, tells them everything God's required. Basically what he's doing is he's 
repeating to them everything you just read in chapters 20, 21, 22, 23. That's the laws of the covenant. He communicates all of God's requirements to the people, and the people respond by saying, all of it, no problem. We will do it all. Everything the Lord has required, we will do. Deuteronomy 5, this other book that Moses wrote, unpacks for a little bit more what this moment was like. It gives it a different angle. Sort of like the gospel stories are four stories about Jesus' events, but told in four different viewpoints so that you see different bits of the same story. Deuteronomy 5 recounts Exodus 24, but gives us another angle. It it tells us what God was thinking when he heard Israel saying it. So you get a, a different vantage point. You get to see what was going on in the mind of God. The people say, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And then Deuteronomy says, the Lord heard their words. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the words of this people which they have spoken to you. They are right in all that they have spoken. Oh, that they had such a heart as this always to fear me and to keep all my commandments that it might go well with them and their descendants forever. Right? They hear, God hears the people saying, everything you have said, we will do. And God applauds their heart to say, I get it. That heart of yours, that desire for obedience is so right. I just wish you had that heart always. And maybe you know what that's like. Maybe you know what it's like in your most sincere moment to promise God. God, I promise I'm going to do it right from now on. And and I, I want you to know God applauds that heart of yours, that desire for obedience when it's right. And yet God, God has this heart that also says, I wish that was your heart at all times. He says to Israel, when they promise obedience, their, their promise is inspiring, and yet God knows they won't keep it. Oh, I wish that you had this fear of me that you do right now, that it might go well with you at all times. Remember last week we said these commandments were given not to ruin their life, but to lead them to life and fullness of joy. And God's saying, I wish you would have this heart, that it would go well with you always. The readiness of this people to obey God is inspiring, and yet God knows this will not end well. In this way, as I was thinking about the role God plays here, it's almost like a groom who is standing at the altar knowing that this bride will not keep her vows and marrying her anyway. It's a groom standing at the altar knowing this this bride of his will cheat on him and break his heart and saying, I love her anyway. Wherever this is going, I'm still going to be hers, and she will still be mine. God knows they will not keep their promise, and he marries Israel anyway. Here they are in Exodus 24. Both sides are in. They're standing there facing one another. God's come to offer covenant to Israel. Israel has more than willingly accepted the terms. They are excitedly like a new bride, promising her vows, saying, I do all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And now all that remains is for some words to be spoken, some rituals to be performed for this covenant to be sealed, right? A man and woman doesn't just say we're husband and wife. There's some words that have to be spoken, some rituals that have to be performed for that ceremony to take place. And so now here they are both standing ready to pledge their love and loyalty to one another 
All that remains are some words and some rituals. That's what you see in verse 4. Here's what happens. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. So Moses gets up early the next morning. He builds an altar, an altar representing the presence of God, right? He builds an altar representing the presence of Yahweh, and then he builds these 12 pillars representing the people. And so now both parties who are going to come into this relationship are represented. God in the altar, Israel through those pillars. God and Israel stand together. They offer some sacrifices. In the coming weeks, we'll talk through why sacrifices were necessary for us to approach God. But then what happens is there's blood that drains out from these sacrifices, This is where it'll get a little strange and unfamiliar, but I need you to press in and see why it is the way that it is. So here it is. God represented in the altar. The people are standing there. And now the blood drained from these offerings are collected. Verse 6. Moses took half the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it. This is a second time. In the hearing of the people, and they said a second time, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Okay, what's going on there? Moses takes the blood that's come from these sacrifices, and half of it he throws against the altar, which represents God. And half of it he takes and he throws it on all the people. Blood now douses both God and the people. They're both standing there covered in blood. Right? He reads again the law to the people and says, here's the covenant. And again they say, all that God has said we will do. That's there, I do. And Moses then takes the blood of these animals and sprinkles it upon this people. Why? Here's what that blood was saying. That blood was shouting, if either of these parties break this covenant, this is what will be required. If either of these parties break this covenant, blood will flow. Right? Blood was always used in covenants. It seems foreign to us. We don't get why they were so, such a bloody people, right? They, they literally used blood in all their things. Why was that? Because it was they were primitive and barbaric? No, blood, blood was this symbol of life and death, right? When, when blood was in you, it was a symbol of life. When blood was out of you, it was a symbol of death. It, it covers the extremes of life and death. And this is signifying that's how permanent this covenant is. It goes to the extremes of life and death. You keep this covenant, it'll be life. You break this covenant, it'll be death. Blood will be shed. And both parties are covered in blood. The altar is covered in blood so much God is saying, if I break this covenant, let death come to me. And the people are covered in blood saying, if we break this covenant, even as this blood has been sprinkled and shed, let it be our blood that is sprinkled and shed. Blood is present in all the covenants you find in the Bible. For example, in Genesis 15, God makes a covenant with Abraham. And what does he tell Abraham to do? He tells Abraham, I want you to take some animals, cut it in half, put half of it here, half of it here. 
And then God walks in between that path with the two halves on each side. Later passages like Jeremiah 34 tell us the meaning of that is this, that both parties were saying to one another, if we break this covenant, let it be us who are torn in two like these animals are torn in two. Let it be our blood that is shed like the blood of these animals have been shed. That's the moment you're seeing in Exodus 24. This ritual is Exodus 24's way of saying, till death do you part. That's Exodus 24's way of saying, listen, this covenant is till death do you part. Until death, you are to remain. And if one of you breaks this covenant, it will mean blood. It will mean death. And both parties come to this moment and say, I do. Both of them stand understanding the vows that they're taking. God has already said, you will be my treasured possession, a kingdom unto me, you will be mine. The people are standing saying, all that the Lord has said, we will do. Both of them say, I do. And at that moment in this covenant ceremony, they're becoming one. All right, here's the question. How does Israel do at keeping the covenant? How do these people do at keeping the promise and vow they just made to God? How long do their promises last? If you've read the Old Testament, or if you read through it now, you're not going to make it 10 chapters. From this point, you don't make it 10 chapters before they cheat on Yahweh and break every vow they ever made. You don't make it to Exodus 32 before you find that Israel has already broken the very first commandment about having no other God and the second commandment about not making another image or idol. Before you get 10 chapters in, Israel has cheated on Yahweh. In fact, the text tells us before you make it to 40 days, after chapter 24, Moses is invited into the mountain to see what God's about to show us, which we'll see in part 3. And, and he stays there for 40 days. They don't make it 40 days before they break their vows. Not 40 days. Have you been there? God, I promise this is the last time. It'll never happen again. God, I promise from now on, I promise to obey. And before you know it, you're right back there again, having broken every vow, every promise you made to God standing as an unfaithful person. And he still remains faithful. You, you don't make it to the end of Exodus. You don't make it to the end of the first five books of Deuteronomy. In fact, you don't make it past this generation. That generation of people who stood at the mountain and promised this with their lips dies in the wilderness, not even allowed to cross into the promised land because they are faithless to God. You don't make it to the book after this, Joshua. When a new generation of Israelites come and it says they, didn't even, they weren't even taught by their parents. They didn't have a clue about God. Their men were not circumcised because the traditions God had said they didn't even start keeping. You don't make it to the, the next book after that, the, the books of the judges, till you realize Israel is now caught in this vicious, wicked cycle. If you read the book of Judges, Israel rebels against God. An enemy overtakes them. They cry out for help. God graciously gives them a savior. And they thank God by rebelling against him. And an enemy takes over. 
They cry out for help. God gives them a savior. They thank God by rebelling against him. And that cycle happens over and over and over again. That's the whole book of Judges. Till Judges ends with the last verse of the book of Judges being, in those days there was no king and everyone did whatever was right in their own eyes. I mean, what a bleak way to end that book. And the writer of the story of Israel is saying, when this happened, in those days, everyone just did whatever they thought was right. And then you get to the days of the last of those judges, the days of Samuel. And you don't make it through the story of Samuel till you find out that Samuel is approached by the people and the people go, you know what? All the other nations have a king. We want a king. And Samuel has a, a, a small seizure and he says, what do you mean you don't have a king? You have God as your king. Did you forget Exodus 24? You were brought into covenant. In fact, unlike all the other nations who have frail human beings on the throne, you have Yahweh as your king. And while he's having this small attack, God says, Samuel, it is not you they rejected. It's me. And you begin to hear the heart of this rejected lover who is God, who says, listen, this isn't you that they've rejected. It's me. And yet when they are faithless, he remains faithful. And so now they get a king. They'd rather have Saul than Yahweh. And that goes well for them. Right? And then you have succession after succession after king after king after king. From the best of them to the worst of them, they lead Israel away from God till they are neck deep in idolatry and sin. The kingdom is torn into two. So instead of Israel, you have Judah and Israel and the northern kingdom swallowed up by the Assyrians. The southern kingdom is swallowed up by the Babylonians. And it's like they've sinned themselves out of existence. And all the while, God is sending prophets to the people saying, come back. Come back. I'm still here. I'm still faithful. Return to me like a husband who's pleading with his wife to be faithful. And over and over, they reject God and turn from God and, and go away from God till you get one of the prophets named Ezekiel. And he sums up what Israel has been like this whole time. In Ezekiel chapter 16, you get one of the most shocking and graphic passages of Scripture because Ezekiel is about to describe what Israel is like. And you find some of the most even sexually explicit language because the passage's title tells it all. It says, the Lord's faithless bride. And Ezekiel begins to describe what Israel, what the people of God are like. In fact, he uses this story to try and explain to them, this is what you're like. He tells the story of a, a little girl almost abandoned to death. And a gracious king who comes and takes her and raises her up and then marries her as his queen. And this girl brought into royalty thanks this king by being faithless. Listen to what Ezekiel 16 says about Israel. This is, this is where Israel's promises go. Just hear it with your ears. No, I pitied you to do anything for you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out into the open field for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. And then God says, but I passed by you and I saw you wallowing in your blood and I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field and you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. It goes on. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment 
over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. And then in verses 9 onwards, he says, And then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood, and I covered you with fine clothes, and I gave you silk, and I gave you fine linen. I put bracelets around your wrists, and I put rings around your nose, and then earrings on your ears, and a crown on your head, and I covered you with royalty, and you, it says, grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. Verse 15, But you trusted in your beauty and played the whore. Because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby, your beauty became his. And then God, in passages you wouldn't read to young children, begins to recount to Israel how she has gone after one lover after another, even returning as a lover to Egypt rather than being faithful to Yahweh, her former captors, and she'd rather have them than God. As she sets up this bedroom in the highest places brazenly for all to see, Verse 30, how sick is your heart, declares the Lord God, because you did all these things, the deeds of a brazen prostitute. And then he goes on to say, the only thing that made you different than a prostitute was that a prostitute at least collects wages. You paid your lovers to cheat against me. He says in verse 32, adulterous wife who receives strangers instead of her husband. And the chapter goes on to recount how God has been faithful and his people have been faithless. And the book of the Old Testament ends with sort of a question mark, what will become of Israel? Here God stands at Exodus 24, making his vows to a bride who will be faithless to him. And yet when she is faithless, he remains faithful Remember where this covenant had sealed them to. If one of us breaks this, blood must be shed. And here Israel saying, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And if we do not keep this, let blood flow. Let it be ours rather than these animals. And so what will God do? Surely blood must be shed. And if you know the story of the Bible, you know blood was shed, only it was not hers but his. Only it was not hers, it was his. It was not the blood of the faithless bride, it was the blood of the faithful groom shed for her. If you've been around Christianity for any time, it can almost seem like Christians are obsessed with blood, right? We sing about blood. We pray to God and thank him for his blood. We use phrases like we're covered in the blood. And Christianity can seem like this barbaric, primitive, morbid religion. In fact, in the early church, the first Christians were called cannibals because the outsiders would see that every Sunday they would gather and they would talk about eating the body and drinking the blood. And all the outsiders thought, who are these people? They're so obsessed with blood. And if you walk in deep enough, you get why. It's because our blood was supposed to flow. And Jesus' blood flowed for us. The covenant required that blood be sprinkled and shed, and the covenant was fulfilled, only it was his blood and not ours. This is why when Jesus was sitting with his disciples for their last supper, said what? This cup 
is the new covenant. It's Exodus 24 all over again. It's the new covenant of my blood for the forgiveness of your sins. Every time you come to communion, it's Exodus 24 all over again. Except it's a new covenant with new blood. And it's not your blood. It's his for the forgiveness of your sins. Rather than you being torn apart, you come to this table to remember his body was broken and torn for you. Almost as if Jesus was saying, I will take the tearing of the body in your place, the shedding of the blood for you. If you remember back a few weeks ago, we, we looked at Hebrews 12. You don't have to turn there now. But we remembered Moses bringing Israel up the mountain of Sinai. And there was cloud and darkness and fear and fright. And we compared that with the mountain Jesus brought us to, Mount Zion, with angels and festal gathering and worship and celebration. Hebrews 12 ends with this verse. It says, but you've come, listen to this, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The writer of Hebrews is remembering Exodus 24, and he compares the blood that Moses spills to the blood of Abel. If you remember back to the story of Abel, what was it? Adam and Eve had these two sons. Cain kills the innocent son. He had done nothing wrong, and his blood was shed. And in those passages, God says, Abel's blood is crying out to me. And what's it crying out for? Justice. Right? God says, I hear Abel's blood. Here's this innocent one who was killed, and his blood is crying out from the ground for justice. And the writer of Hebrews says, that's what Exodus 24 was like. It was like the blood was being shed on the people saying, justice is what's required. And then the writer says, but Jesus sprinkled blood that speaks a better word. Because the blood that is shed by Jesus cries out, mercy on all whom it falls. When we come to communion, we are like the people in Exodus 24, covered in blood. Only it's the blood of Jesus and all those who are covered in his blood have this blood screaming out to God a better word than justice. It's the word mercy. Picture yourself coming to this table And as you take this cup, think of yourself covered from head to toe in blood. And this blood is screaming out to the Father, mercy. It's like Jesus is standing over you and saying, I know, Father, he deserves justice. But my blood has been spilled over him. Extend to him mercy. His blood speaks a better word for us. And here we are standing covered in it. And when Exodus 24 finishes, this is the last part. Thankfully, this whole ceremony of them becoming one doesn't end with blood. In fact, the last few verses of Exodus 24, 9 through 11 says, the people went up, they saw God, and then verse 11, God did not lay his hand on the people of Israel, they beheld God, and they ate and drank. It ends like a wedding ceremony would end. It ends like a reception. Here they are, they've been brought into covenant with one another. God invites them all the way to actually see his feet. And then rather than slaughtering them there, they eat and drink with God. And you go, what a a beautiful picture of how this covenant is sealed. And then you get, why did Jesus leave you a meal? 
because he's doing Exodus 24 all over again saying, here, there's a new covenant with new blood that speaks a new and better word and you every week are invited to come and eat and drink with God. In two minutes after I finish preaching, you're going to come to communion. And that's what this meal is. You get to eat and drink with God. In fact, what they ate was probably the sacrifice that was offered before. And that's what they devoured. And it's the same thing. Jesus offers his torn body and shed blood as the very meal by which we come and eat and drink in peace with God. And so let your prayer this day be, God, cover me with your blood that it might speak a better word than even the blood of Abel. Let's pray. Father, I ask that if any of the words that I have said have been wasteful or not from you, you would remove them. But whatever is from you, that your spirit would drive deep into our hearts. We pray that your spirit would speak to us from the word we have just heard, that it would warn us from being people who come near you but never have you in our lives, that are all around you and your people, all around your meal, all around these ceremonies, these rituals, these words, but in the end fall away and are judged and consumed. Lord, save us from being like Nadab and Abihu, but rather invite us in all the way that though we are time and time again faithless, you remain faithful. Though we have not kept promises we have made and broken vows we have, you remain faithful to us. And when blood was required, you shed your own rather than spilling ours. And you invite us to this meal to be renewed in covenant with you. To take your body torn for us and blood shed for us so that we might even now eat and drink with God. We thank you for all that is ours in Christ. Draw us to him, we pray. Amen.